I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Germany is totally controlled by Russia. Donald Trump stew in the UK today for the first time as US president. Meantime, the US embassy in Britain is currently worried about the safety of Americans during the visit. In fact, it's issued an alert warning people to be cautious as large anti-Trump protests are expected to be held in London. July has been an extraordinary month in Britain and America. You've had the fervor of England's progress in the World Cup, the President of America siding with Vladimir Putin over the FBI, Brexit has taken yet another left turn with the resignations of Johnson and Davis, and whilst Donald Trump had tea with the Queen, 100,000 Brits protested his very presence and flew a blimp over Parliament to mock him. As a special relationship gets less special, the Mid-Atlantic podcast sees the other side. I've been producing this podcast since 2013, with Mid-Atlantics trying to analyse the news from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other, and it's never been more needed than now. My regular co-hosts include Salon Senior Political Reporter Amanda Marcart, journalist and writer Mick Wright from GQ, the New Statesman and The Daily Telegraph, Oxford academic and best-selling author Chris Cotuna, and emergency communications expert Doug Levy, and Alice Thwaite, the founder and editor-in-chief of the Echo Chamber. In recent episodes, we have covered the threat or the promise of a second referendum on Brexit, the crumbling special relationship between the US and the UK, and how sporting success and failure play into national identity. And we've even looked at the gulf between Russia's politicians and her people. If you want to share my passion for Britain and my wonder of American politics and culture, why don't you go and download the Mid-Atlantic podcast today? Please forgive a humble podcaster, everybody. I've been podcasting since, what, 2012. So what's that? Some some six plus years ago. And I've produced some 400 odd podcasts. Now, you'd think with my wealth of experience that I would not forget the most essential tool that every podcaster needs 
other than his laptop of course it is his microphone and in this recording with david i forgot my mic so my audio sounds just a little bit muffled because it comes off the microphone just on the laptop now what i have done is i've invested in a travel microphone which can always sit in my man bag with me so i will never make this mistake again i hope it doesn't impinge too much on your enjoyment of this show um, i think this is a good one please bear with me and my dodgy audio as we go through this thorny but a vital topic on a very English icon. It was the best of time. It was the worst. She was the people's princess. She'll fight on the beaches. Oh, wait, man. These are the things that made England. She'll fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I have a body, but of a weak and feeble woman. These are the things that made England. And the king of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things that made England. Hello everybody and welcome to the things that made England. The idea of this show is to decide on what things made England the way that she is. The country that, despite it all, we feel lucky to be part of. Every week one of us, that's David and I, pitch an idea to the other to be designated as one of the things that makes England distinctive. David, what a tortuous week we've had trying to record, eh? It hasn't been easy, Rod Hill. I blame you. Why? Well, actually, because I don't want to blame myself. Well, actually, it has primarily been my fault. <laughs> well, that is because you do all the work, but you know, it's just easier to blame someone else than me. Talking about blame, sir. Right. Oh yes. Um, the person who, well, the thing, if you're in the shape of the person I'm nominating this week, is someone who's blamed for fundamentally changing the fabric of our nation. Oh yes, is that uh, is that Dennis Amos, the famous Warwickshire opening batsman? <laughs> No, he didn't have such an effect on the didn't whole he country. He changed my life. He, he didn't. Well, he might have changed yours, but uh, not many other lives are around him. But Margaret Hilda Thatcher. Maggie Who? Thatcher, the milk snatcher. Now, she served as a prime Never minister. Never heard of her. You have, David. And I know you have strong <laughs> feelings about her. Right, now, it not to feelings be... for her, could it, I just it, say. Hmm. Oh, that's made me feel quite ill. Well, Go on. I'm going to say up front that uh, politically, I don't hold much of a candle uh, to this woman. Though, as a dyed-in-the-wool lefty, I have to admit she did fundamentally change uh, England and, uh, and the United Kingdom. But she served as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom from 1979 to 1990, uh, when she was toppled by the Tory party. So they got rid of her in the end because she'd overstayed her welcome. She was the longest-serving British Prime Minister of the 20th century and, of course, the first woman to hold that office. And the first woman to hold office, such high office in the Western world, if you, um, if you discount Golda Meir in, in Israel. Um, she was the most divisive political figure of the 20th century, passionately loved and hated in equal measure. A legacy is still somewhat debated. Dubbed the Iron Lady by the Russians, and she became an ism in her own lifetime. And she became an ism before Reaganomics, which was, dare I say, a grubby copy of Thatcherism. We're coming to the moment of decision. As the tumult and the shouting of the last few weeks die away, and you sit at home wondering what to do on Thursday, I can well imagine you saying to yourselves, 
If only the politicians would be quiet. If only we could sit peacefully for a few minutes and think about our country and its future and the decision you are asking us to make. I know how you feel. The decision is crucial. The problems facing Britain are very grave. I can't remember when our people have approached an election quite as thoughtfully as this one. It's been a wonderful campaign for you. Congratulations. Thank you very much. How do you feel at this moment? Very excited, very aware of the responsibilities. Her Majesty, the Queen, has asked me to form a new administration, and I have accepted. It is, of course, the greatest honour that can come to any citizen in a democracy. I know full well the responsibilities that await me as I enter the door of number 10, and I'll strive unceasingly to try to fulfil the trust and confidence that the British people have placed in me and the things in which I believe. And I would just like to remember some words of St Francis of Assisi, which I think are really just particularly apt at the moment. Where there is discord, may we bring harmony. Where there is error, may we bring truth. Where there is doubt, may we bring faith. And where there is despair, may we bring hope. To those waiting with bated breath for that favourite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. <laughs> the ladies not for turning. <laughs> I can wait for the honourable gentleman. There is no doubt that the Prime Minister has in many ways achieved substantial success in the economy. There is is one statistic that I understand is not, however, challengeable, and that is that over her 11 years, the gap between the richest 10% and the poorest 10% in this country has widened substantially. How can she say at the end of her chapter of British politics that she can justify many people in a constituency such as mine being relatively much poorer off, much less well housed and much less well provided than it was in 1979. Surely she accepts that is not a record that she or any Prime Minister can be proud of. Mr Speaker, all levels of income are better off than they were in 1979. But what the Honourable Member is saying is that he were rather the poor were poorer, provided the rich were less rich. That way you will never create the wealth for better social services as we have. And what a policy. Yes, he would rather have the poor poorer, provided the rich were less rich. That is a liberal policy. Yes, it came out. He didn't intend it to, but he did. I give way to the the Honourable Gentleman. I'm extremely extremely grateful. The the Prime Minister is aware that uh, I detest every single one of her domestic policies and I've never had that. And I think that the Honourable Gentleman knows that I have the same contempt for his socialist policies as the people of East Europe who have experienced it have it for that. I'm most grateful to the Prime Minister 
Will she tell us whether she intends to continue her own personal fight against a single currency and an independent central bank when she leaves office? No, she's going to be the governor. On the present structure... What a good idea. (laughs) I hadn't thought of it. But if I were, there'd be no European Central Bank accountable to no one, least of all to national parliament. Because the point of that kind of European Central Bank is no democracy taking powers away from every single parliament and being able to have a single currency and a monetary policy and an interest rate which takes all political power away from us. As my right honourable friend said in his first speech after the proposal of a single currency, a single currency is about the politics of Europe. It is about a federal Europe by the back door. So I'll consider the honourable gentleman's proposal. Now, where were we? I'm enjoying this. I'm enjoying this. What is Thatcherism, Royfield? What do you think Thatcherism was, David? What do I think it is? Hmm. I'm not sure that there was a Thatcherism. I think she had a... There are probably some core beliefs that she had. It's quite a complicated question. I would have said she believed in the individual rather than... uh, Primarily rather than society. Mm -hmm. I believe she picked up a form of monetarist economics, which, um, uh, although how far she actually implemented it is questionable. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the end, I think it's in the individual personal responsibility, duty, those sort of themes, which drove most of what she did. Yeah. But th- there is a little bit more to it than that. But I think, you, you know, you're kind of going down in the right direction. Now, I Thanks. think for me, Thatcherism is a political and economic credo that emphasizes free markets because it, cannot be said loudly enough that what she did was to rip up the post-war consensus. So um, we, defeat, we helped defeat the Nazis in 1945 and left and right broadly agree on everything. Okay, so the Labour Party sets up uh, the National Health Service and comprehensive education, etc. But you have Tory governments as late as the early 70s that actually are nationalising industries under Ted Heath. She stops all of that. And so what Thatcherism is, is a credo emphasising free markets with low government spending and deregulation, particularly the financial sector, flexible labour markets, so Norman Tebbit, get on your bike and go and find a job, privatisation of state-owned industries, and that was just about everything, so British Airways through to um, the GPO, so we had BT spinning off first, But then, uh, after talking about uh, big government, she actually centralised power. So there are lots of quangos, that's where we get the the word quango for the first time, and she takes away power from local authorities. Because if you remember at that time, in the early 80s, all the metropolitan counties were, in inverted commas, loony left. So you had the GLC in London, you had Greater Manchester, you had the West Midlands, 
authority over here in Brum, etc. And they're all run by, uh, by, by the Labour Party. She gets rid of those. She has a war on unions. And of course, it's tax cuts for, for everybody, but biased for corporations and the rich. And then with a little bit of nationalism thrown in, you know, she was a flag waver. So I think you put all those things together and you've got Thatcherism. Sounds very good. Sounds much, uh, much more comprehensive than mine. Hmm. Uh, now, what did she do? She remade British politics. As I said before, destroying the post-war political consensus. She pushed the Tory party rightwards. And it's almost like a misnomer to call her a conservative because she was anything but conservative. She was ripping everything up and kind of starting again. So, and what she does is reject traditional Toryism, which is kind of this one nation, soft right kind of view of noblesse oblige and squires and all of that kind of malarkey. And she, paternalistic, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And she kind of models the, the, the Conservative Party as the party of the small thrusting businessmen. It's the, um, you've done well and you've gone to grammar school type of thing, but you come from humble uh, humble beginnings and she kept on saying that she was a grocer's daughter that was her thing it was all about um, simp- simple economics uh, derived from the fact that she came from um, you know a grocer's daughter and and this is the reason why I think she needs to go into the into the cabinet as an English icon as much as I kind of loathe her legacy is because what she does do with this remodelling of the Tory party is to help stoke English nationalism. And the Tory party really is be, really becomes to be seen as an English party because mm. even though she wins three general elections, 79, 83, 87, the, the Tory party continuously losing seats in Scotland and Wales, though she has thumping majorities in definitely 83 and in 87. And, and this is off the back of her strength in England. And, and it's kind of at that point that, yes, the Scottish Nationalist Party is, was founded well before she became Prime Minister, but it's very much is a minority party in Scotland that they get, kind of get wind in their sails by saying we are anti-Tory. And you start to see um, the fraying of the Union uh, really during her premiership. Because Scots just go, we are not like the English. We don't want all this deregulation. We don't want these attacks on on kind of government spending. This is very much an English thing, it's seen as. And dare I say, a South East England thing. Because the North of England is very anti-Thatcher as well. Are you with me so far? I am, yeah. I mean, the only thing I'd comment on that is is whether Margaret Thatcher set out to stoke English nationalism is a bit questionable. That I, I totally agree that's what ended up happening because, as you say, the Scots uh, in particular and the Welsh also hated Thatcherism and all it stood for. Um, but I'm not sure I remember her you know, being particularly, you know, she was very British, actually. I think she felt very strongly about the Union, but a small point. No, 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 I'll, I'll completely and utterly agree. And when she uh, weighed into the troubles in Northern Ireland, it very much was as a British Prime Minister trying to uphold the Union. She never saw herself as an English nationalist, but the effect of her politics was so divisive that's in effect how the Scots, and to the Welsh to a much lesser degree, saw her. Wales is a much more kind of complicated issue in all of this. But 
I think if you speak to any Scottish nationalist worth their salt, they always point to the 1980s under Thatcher as where the Tory party gets cleaved away from Scotland, really. And they see the... Yeah, I mean, I totally agree about the outcome, as I say, Mm. just that I'm not sure that was necessarily her intention. No, 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 absolutely wasn't. And she was forever waving the Union Jack, you know, those famous pictures of her you know, on top of that tank, wasn't there, with a little Union Jack behind her and stuff, and those goggles on, uh, looking like she was some female Montgomery about to go into battle. And, um, yes, she was. Def- she saw herself as a British icon. The Scots saw her as an English icon. And now we have a devolution in Scotland, and we have the Scottish Nationals Party being by far the largest party in Scotland. And what, mm-hmm. some three, four years ago, Scotland almost left the Union. You know, you can trace this yeah. all the way back to Thatcher. May well, may well do again. Absolutely. So, yes, she, okay, accepted. All right. So she's elected as. Do you, want me uh, to say, do you want me to say something useful? Yeah, yeah, please do. Okay. Because uh, so your your proposal is to put Thatcher into the cabinet as mm. something which has made England. Um, so my attitude towards Margaret Thatcher, uh, Roy Hood. Have you ever read a book? The best thing about which is actually the title uh, by, I think it's Malcolm Bradbury, called Eating People is Wrong. Uh, no. OK, because um, this sort of sums up my attitude to Margaret Thatcher. Eating People is Wrong is a, it's a very funny book about the liberal dilemma, um, the inability of liberals, you know, the desire of liberals to hunt with the hare, well, sorry, hunt with the hounds and run with the hare, mm-hmm. uh, the inability to, make, to actually agree what is right and what is wrong down to the point where the only things liberals can really agree on is that eating people is wrong. Uh-huh. And actually, even that you might question. So I'm a bit like that with Maggie Thatcher. So personally, I found her utterly repulsive. I could not hear her voice without wanting to, you know, open a vein. Uh, I say repulsive, there's a little strong. But, you know, um, she put my... she. I came out in spots, hives, whatever. Mm. What is a hive? Anyway, um, so... And, you know, I hated the hated all the poll tax riots. I hated that polarization of society. I hated that fear of the lack of compassion in the politics. And yet, um, you know, as a kid watching the news in the 70s, it was just dire. It was just dire. Even as a even as somebody fairly young, I the constant industrial disputes, the inability to do anything, um, you know, the continuing feeling of decline and it was just horrid actually absolutely horrid and i think we forget that at our at our peril so there's this this problem with uh, with maggie thatcher here is a person if i looked back in history and didn't have any personal connection with her i would say this is a person who for good or ill had incredibly impressive characteristics incredibly determined you know her success in staying there for all the, for all those years the amount of change she made utterly exception exceptional but there's quite a lot about what she did that i didn't like but there's also quite a lot that I thought was quite necessary. So I have a problem with Margaret Thatcher. In terms of whether she should go in to the cabinet as somebody made England, I mean, it's, I'm not even going to pretend to argue. I might say that very often, I think, obviously, we identify individuals with change, whereas, mm. and usually in history, you find a lot more continuity than there is change. And actually, when you look at um, economic policy, I think that's often the case. Actually, people say that they talked about monetarism, Actually, what she did wasn't wasn't anywhere near as monetarist as you might think. That you made the point about 
decentralization. She was all about get rid of government and nobody did more to increase the amount of government than Margaret Thatcher for exactly the reasons she said. She wanted to get rid of um, left-wing councils. Uh, so, you know, I think when we look back, we will, and we take the heat out of it, probably Margaret Thatcher will go down as somebody who wasn't quite as effectual as we think now, who didn't do everything that she said she'd do. But nonetheless, she changed the atmosphere of England forever, I think. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I wanted to try and pull you to task about the late 1970s and the unremitting kind of bad news. And and I can't. The only thing I would say about all of those politicians that were in power in, in Britain then was that the oil crisis in, what, 73 and the onset of the huh? three-day week, that has a massive rupture in not just British politics, but actually in world politics. And that's where the um, American post-war boom, in effect, ends. Though, it's really interesting looking at the economic figures, as I did doing the research for this show, that the British economy, even though we have massive inflation in 76, 77, 78, 79, and inflation gets up to 18% in one year, the economy is still growing up until 1979. So even though we have uh, the winter of discontent in 78, 79, we have apparently in parentheses unions out of control, we have inflation out of control, and we have to go to the IMF in what, 76, because we Britain mm. has run out of cash, our economy is still actually growing. Um, is that in real terms? or? I, 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 all terms. I've looked at this left, right, and up and down. It's only in the last quarter of '79, when she's prime minister for she's been prime minister for six months, then um, we go into recession. And I do, and it's something like a recession for eight quarters. So it's deep when it happens. Yeah, and obviously yeah, because she deflated it in the middle of her economy, which is guess, sort of a yeah, theory, isn't yeah, it? It, it, it? Absolutely. But what she does do, and, and, you, and you said this, is she absolutely changes the mood music. Though, and this is almost kind of lost to history now, she was, for the first three years, incredibly unpopular because she wasn't saying things that British prime ministers normally said. She was this divisive figure. She was going to war with bits of establishment thing but it was the war wasn't it the Falklands war which actually saved her and actually really made her reputation the fact that the Argentinians in April 1982 decided to go and invade the Malvinas or as they would call it the Falklands as, as we'd call it these, these yeah. possessions in uh, the southern Atlantic there's only 2,000 uh, people that, that lived there and Argentina had long coveted uh, the, these kind of barren rocks and they thought, uh, you know, and you think, well, it's... Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that saved her. Yeah, her approval ratings are incredibly low, but she decides, well, we're going to recover these. There's no two ways about it. Um, most of Brits have never even heard of the Falkland Islands. It's a roll of the dice by, by, the, by the hunter. General Galtieri, that's it. His name's General, General Galtieri. They're having some problems in Argentina. They, we'll just go and grab these. We'll have sky-high approval in, in Argentina. The Brits won't do anything, but actually we do. And we recover them two months later. 
and it's the last echo of empire we still are a global player we grab them back and she never looked back from there on and she has this crushing uh, victory in 1983 and then that's really where she then turns up the wick with the deregulation the privatization she goes to war with uh, with scargill uh, the leader of the national union of mine workers she starts selling off the council houses that's when you get full thatcherism really after 83 she just fiddles around with it beforehand and we have um this is peak thatch in in the mid 80s well i think i mean i'd argue that um in a way the most painful thing and maybe the thing that she uh yeah, one of the most questionable things about her economic policy was deflating in that 91 uh, sorry 81 period because as you say actually there was growth up until that point mm-hmm. um and I think the jury is still very much out about whether that was the right thing to do and actually had the effect that, that she intended or whether it just deepened the recession. And it's part of that whole um, lack of compassion thing that I think that I feel so um, two faced about with Margaret Thatcher, because on the one hand, you know, we'd been consensus politics had led us into you know lack of effective decision making and um inability to make difficult decisions and she was good at that in spades um on the other hand did that polarization actually achieve something that made us better i'm not sure that it did it made us very different for example when billy bragg uh, you know, St. Billy, I keep mentioning Billy Bragg, she's a bit uh-huh. uh, desperate of him, isn't it? But uh, when she died, it was very Billy Bragg. Somebody turned to Billy and thought, well, you know, what, what's he going to say about this as a as a long term activist and a person who fought Thatcher all the time? And his whereas there were actually pretty revolting celebrations all around the country at her death. Uh, you know, he wrote this very measured thing which said, you know, the death of a person is, is not something ever to be celebrated. What you should do is go out and be activist, fight the Britain that uh, the ideas that Margaret Thatcher espoused rather than celebrating a death. And for him, um, you know, Thatcherism was about what well, he said in his quote, why working families now have to have two people have to go to work. You can't do on one. Why there's, a, there's no social housing around. Why, um, you know, a whole load of other stuff, some more arguable than others. But that atmosphere of individual over community, that's an interesting question. You know, has Britain really changed? Is it more driven by greed and cynicism as Billy would claim? Or is it actually the same as it's always been? People don't change and there's you know, uh, plenty of community around. I don't know. I think there's a mood music, isn't there? There's a mood music in any community, in any country. So what, um, let's say, what the French tell themselves, that they're a deeply secular society. But actually, uh, more people go to church in France than, than go to church in the United Kingdom. But, mm. you know, it, it's kind of national kind of myth building or... And what she did was definitely... What for avoiding the word mythos, by the way? Yeah, well, thank you, David. You did say credo earlier, but, you know... Did I? Okay, mm-hmm. it's progress. It's progress. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, you were talking of mythos, Roy. Uh, no, myth. Um, so, because uh, my knuckles have been wrapped uh, numerous times. Uh, <laughs> um, and what she did do, and I know we're kind of slightly repeat, repeating ourselves, but she did say that at one point, the famous interview, and she said there's no such thing as society, and it was just a, it was just a collection of individuals. And there was a strand of 
Tory thought, radical Tory thought, which was on both sides of the Atlantic, admittedly, started from the 1950s, which was completely and utterly to do away with all notions of, of, of society. And when she comes to power, this is still very much a, a fringe ideology. But she is the first Western leader to make this manifest. And then Reagan follows it. And the other aspect of Thatcher, just before I, I forget and come back on to really what's her legacy, is that she forges a close relationship with America. And I'm not saying per se that Reagan, Reaganomics followed Thatcherism. They're both from the same economic political thought. And without Thatcher, Reagan would have done Reaganomics anyway. But, but, but Thatcherism does come first. But what she does do is forge a close relationship between the British Prime Minister and the American President, which feels like a personal relationship. And that's kind of really the first time that that had really happened. If you think about it, we have, uh, post that, we have Blair with Bush. We have, um, and then, and we even have Trump and and May. Now, I don't think they're actually politically close, but the, but the, the optics, the hand-holding, and we keep talking about the special relationship, and the special relationship's been around since the Second World War. But there, there are there's the photographic optics. Do you think now, we'll stop talking about the special relationship? No, no. I we, mean, it's irrelevant. Is the thing? No. I mean, you know, it's nice, but I would have preferred it if Margaret Thatcher had been less adversarial in Europe. Although, of course, it turns out she was a good deal more Europhile than David Cameron, the the. No, um, because she she didn't screw it up in the way that Cameron did. You know, is it a good thing that she was? Actually, I agree. She did create this. Um, she did get on on a personal level with yes. with folks yeah. like Reagan, uh, and I suppose that's no bad thing. No, no, um, it, it, it's no bad thing. But it sets um, a template for the photo ops of British prime ministers and American presidents ever since, really. But. Let's just quickly go through her legacy. Deregulation of industries, especially finance, which has led to led to kind of the loads of money culture and the boom of the city of London. So London is the preeminent money market in the world. It does slightly eclipse New York. That is because of Thatcher and the fact that now what some 20, I forget what the, what the percentage is, but I think some 30 percent of our economy is but just under thirty percent is financial services. That is Thatcher, full stop. Privatization of state industries, um, and we set in place the model for the rest of the industrialized world. You know, we get rid of um, the state owning um, car companies, rail companies. We do it first, and we get rather paltry returns in terms of money back into state coffers. And at best, we get patchy service back. And it's kind of interesting, again, doing the research for this, is things like British Steel, which mm. were actually making money as a state-owned enterprise, were lean and efficient, and were absolutely no drain on the state. But ideologically, we still got rid of them. Yeah. You know. uh, well, I don't, I don't know the uh, arguments other way, so I'm not going to challenge your statement. Um, we, she battles trade unions because she wants this flexible market. Um, so a legacy, weak trade unions, lots of trade union laws. And I've seen the most obvious day-to-day legacy of Thatcher is the amount of homeless people which we see on our streets. Before Thatcher, um, there was always a reason why that person was homeless. And invariably, 
it was that some kind of mental mental health breakdown, and there was in effect uh, no homeless w- within the UK. Now, uh, because of the selling off of council homes, which is a massive demographic shift, she you know these working she created working class Tories who um, became kind of daily mail readers who were thrusting and aspirational in a way which hadn't been seen before in, in British broadcast English society. And it's interesting, when you think of those loads of money people, they're always English. We don't think of Scottish loads of monies. We don't think of um, Scottish people buying their own homes and then changing their front doors and then putting in double glazing windows. It always was the sign that someone has bought their own council home. And though you might say, though people will say, well, you know, why couldn't people buy their own home but but what the Tory government clearly said in the way of social gerrymandering was that uh, councils couldn't build uh, the equivalent homes again so in terms of I mean in terms of outcome it's an interesting one because you know it's very easy to make a lot of uh, very firm, definitive statements, and of course, there are so many variables in these things. David, this is um, this is the thing which I'm actually firmest about. But but go on. But so I absolutely agree with you about social housing, for example. That mm-hmm. um, that's one of the great reasons why we've got this flood of homelessness, and it's got particularly bad recently. Um, but and, and um, you know, and nonetheless, uh-huh. the and clearly Thatcher didn't invert didn't invent uh, the working class Tory otherwise she wouldn't have got elected um, nonetheless there's but, but, uh, there but is she, but uh, she does give them rocket fuel though doesn't she so places like Basildon in, in Essex become bastions of this new type of um, English person somebody who will wave the flag of St George, white van man white van man kind of comes into his own in, in the 1980s the Sun newspaper has been around since the early 1970s, but it's the totem for this new type of Englishman, isn't it? Then you know that, that loves Thatcher, sees himself as ordinary, likes a bit of flag waving, is is jingoistic, and has bought their own council home. Well, these these are the headlines. I mean, this is what the media would have us believe. Um, and the I would I would need to. Uh, understand what happened before better to understand whether that reflects a, a change in in the visible um, and the, the the superficial and the way that people represent themselves, or whether there was actually any fundamental change in well, the way. Well, 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 well let's say she, she gives them voice because you know you, you are right that history is something of incremental change, and and you know things don't radically change overnight. It wasn't as if all of a sudden. She gets elected in 1979 as working class Tories. And there were, you know, in popular culture, there were people like Alf Garnick beforehand. So, you know, this phenomena was there before. But it very much was the zeitgeist of the 1980s that you have this kind of bellicose, upwardly mobile um, element of, of working class people, ostensibly in new towns in, in the southeast of England. So, and, and that is, and that has never left. English culture, uh, but it's quite say. interesting, isn't it? So, what happened after Thatcher went? Um, David, let, let, everybody went back. But my point is uh-huh. about is the question of the fundamental nature of change. I think we attribute far more to Thatcher than uh, we should do. Actually, I think 
we attribute we don't remember enough about detail um so the minor strike for example uh, the incredible conflict there the fact that um Arthur Scargill was absolutely right. On the other hand, so was Margaret Thatcher, probably. That um, uh, you know, there's a, that pain in detail. The way she handled that was incredibly adversarial. Maybe there was no other way of doing it. Maybe it didn't have to be done. I don't know. But there's a detail there well, which Thatcher me, was not was not good at handling that situation if it could have been handled, well, um, let, or at least the way she handled it led to it. Let, let, let's just look at the minor. Sorry, just right. to, just to finish the Go other. On. on the other hand, so there's a detail thing. Mm-hmm. On the other hand. These big themes about, oh, Thatcher made us more individualistic, more greedy, blah, 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 blah. I really doubt those things. What happens immediately after Thatcher has gone is we get back into much more consensus style politics. Oh, but OK. But now this is where I'm on absolutely on quite sure ground here. Right. So what she does do is to not only change the Conservative Party, but she changes. I would say she changes British society. So we do have this cleave between England and Scotland. In 1950, was it the 1958 elections? One or the other, but the Tory party is the majority party in Scotland. So okay, well, I put the Scottish thing to, to the side because I absolutely agree with you. Okay, all right. So she, changes, so she changes the Conservative Party by making it more libertarian and more radical. So it's less of a conservative party, just a right-leaning party, a right. She gets party. rid of that old paternalistic. Absolutely. Oh, I'm going to she start thought, mentioning Rhys Mogg, aren't I? You know that sort of hideous um, old-style stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely. She calls them. She calls them the wets, doesn't she? James Pryor, people like that. Um, but she changes British politics. Yes. Uh, the SDP is formed because of a, uh, you know, a rightward lurch, of, sorry, a leftward lurch of the Labour Party, but it's also because of a rightward lurch of the Tory Party that um, David Steele and uh, David Owen uh, want to create um, a more robust centre. And she changes British politics so much so that uh, that we don't, when we get Tony Blair in 1997, we don't reprivatise all of our state industries. We don't say we need more regulation on industries. We have a little bit more to do with finance, and then we take the Bank of England out of control by, by the government. But actually, we don't wind things all the way back, do we? By no. any stretch of the imagination. And the air of Thatcher actually isn't John Major it's actually Tony Blair that here is somebody who actually you know comes out with a a David Crowther interpretation and says we maybe needed to do a lot of the things that she did but we didn't need to do it in the way that she did it so I am warmer I'm cuddlier I will talk to you about your insecurities etc but actually uh, the way the the socio economic way that the state has has been run for the last twenty years, I'm going to keep this uh, keep this going, and that shows you how much of a legacy that this woman actually had, because the party directly opposite was fighting tooth and nail all the way through the 1980s, lock stock and barrel by 1997, really just had is a continuation of her policies, but with and you know we don't. We, we, we don't put all the um, 
all the metropolitan councils back together. We don't deprivatize um, local transport. So in my hometown of Birmingham, you cannot get a night bus after 12 o'clock. It's absolutely ridiculous. You know, we, we continue with, with her policies. And that is a true legacy that she completely uh, reshapes British politics. And I can't say it uh, loudly enough. She made the Scots hate us. Uh, so, yes, I agree that she she absolutely changed politics. She's that we don't go back and reinvent those things. I absolutely agree with that. Um, I think, however, what happened once that dial had been moved, mm-hmm. politics returned to the centre. That centre is was differently positioned. I yes, agree exactly. But and, you know, and the whole just... atmosphere then changes. You know, everybody's desperate to get back to the um, uh, to a rather more reasonable debate. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's interesting. You did say this as well that actually she was a Europhile. You know, on the face of it, um, people like Nigel Farage will say that she's a Europhobe. But but no, she she wanted reform from the European Union from within. She, she didn't actually want to come out, but uh, many Brexiteers would see her definitely as the heir to her, the heir to, to their, uh, their quest uh, for moving us away actually from Europe. But she, she well, her rhetoric was very aggressive, basically, yeah. wasn't yeah. And, uh, you know, that, that's what the way Thatcher was. She wasn't, her rhetoric wasn't collaborative. Actually, I think behind the scenes was a rather more, there was rather more sensitivity and collaboration going on. There's a little bit of Henry VIII in um, uh, in Thatcher. I thought you were exhausted with Henry VIII. No, not it's, yet. It's been a year, you said, and, and I'm exhausted. I've got we've got we've got a vote going on on the history of England right now. You see, and you when never that, that, stop plugging your own podcast, do you? It's true. Well, because you know what else is there? You know? <laughs> <laughs> There's air, water, you know, heat power light and my podcast <laughs> uh anyways a little bit of henry the eighth in thatcher a lot of rhetoric actually rather more sensitivity and ability to change and be adaptable than you might at first think anyway i mean it's a what's small your point. evidence of that what's your evidence because um it's hard. i think that was why she, i think that was why she fell actually because she stopped reading the runes hmm you know, she stopped being able to compromise, to work people into alliances with her. Um, she was all, you know, uh, the power went to her head. She came utterly hubristic and it was her way or no way. Um, so the poll tax thing, you know, going through with that was, you know, the kiss of death for her, really, wasn't it? Mm. Absolutely. But I would say then that she wasn't somebody to compromise. But you said that behind the scenes that she did much more. And for evidence that she wasn't somebody to compromise um, was the fact that she the, the, the cabinet becomes a less important thing under her premiership, that she's much more kind of dictatorial and uh, cabinet power up until, seven, well, let's say 83, the cabinet sorry, was a much more powerful body in terms of I'm the Secretary of State for for transport or health. And you're kind of left to kind of get on and do what what you had to do. Uh, But you look at the biographies of all of those uh, Tory ministers in in the 1980s, and they say she she did wield a massive shadow over everything that everybody did, and that basically 
uh, the cabinet was a little bit of, becomes more of a, a rubber stamp for what the prime minister actually uh, although that is interesting isn't it i mean you look at the, the i mean this maybe this is me so you know i could be completely wrong about it, but think about the figures that we remember the politicians that we remember, we remember after that all and their compare names them to the people now. that we have now and think about their weight and reputation. The likes of Douglas Hurd, Jeffrey Howe, even Heseltine. Mm-hmm. Actually, these are people with some, uh, you know, Kenneth Clark. When Kenneth Clark um, spoke in Parliament not too long ago about Brexit, suddenly everybody sat up and listened and thought, oh, this is a guy who knows what he's talking about. Um, so despite that feeling of dominance, and I don't deny that Thatcher drove the government and was the cent- you know, nothing went on without her approval, as it were. Actually, she was the government was well served by some quite talented people, whether you like them or not. Norman Fowler, uh, John Selwyn Gummer, you know, we still. Ooh, <laughs> Norman Tebbit, Norman Tebbit, Norman Tebbit, her utter uh, ideological rottweiler. Yeah, what about? I mean, what, what's your point? My, my point is that we do remember them twenty, well, not twenty, thirty years later. Um, that this was a time of of uh, Tory politicians, Tory cabinet members whose. Uh, legacy and whose names actually do echo uh, mm. down down through history in a way that um, when Tony Blair comes to power, yes, there is um, there is Gordon Brown, etc., but and Claire Short, but we do not remember uh, you know the ten others. You know, could just the, be us, of course, you know, because I understand you're almost as old as I am. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, I didn't realise that. You, you know, David, exactly. We talked about this on numerous times, <laughs> and each time you're always surprised when I say I'm like four years younger than you. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, mm. yeah. Anyway, uh, shall we? Um, yes. I think enough. we're both in complete and utter agreement that. Yeah, hated it or loathe it. Hated it or loathe it. We need in. to put her in the yeah. in the cabinet. We might, I might have a settled separate section in the cabinet, but that you know that reflects my my liberal inability to make a decision. It's appalling. Hmm. I recognise it in myself. Very anyway, unThatcher like. Very unThatcher like. Go, very yeah. unThatcher like. Very consensus post-war consensus politics like. Uh, right. So in the cabinet she goes. David, after that mammoth discourse about a woman which neither of us actually quite like, so what I think we should do is absolutely kick our feet up and see what Fiona has come up with with a social media roundup. Fiona here with the social media roundup for the Longbow edition. David proposed the Longbow as cabinet worthy. Royfield refuted David's claim and stood by with a hefty set of keys and an argument against its merit. Then it was up to you to decide. So I'll take a shot and look at the poll. 73 people were for putting it into the cabinet, 8 people against, 5 people opted to sit this one out. All right, I told a little fib. First I'll look at the poll and now I'll I'll take my shot. Archers, knock your arrows. Draw. Fire at will. Archers? I said fire at will, not at Royfield. And 
the discussion. As usual, there are so many wonderful posts on the Facebook page that I can only offer a few of the highlights. Jan was very amusing, first scolding Royfield, then reminding us of the Battle of Towton. Battles of this era usually started with a to and fro between archers, Jan said. Finally, one side or t'other got hacked off with being turned into hedgehogs and sallied forth. There were many, many mentions of Robin Hood, but since my melting point is always children, it's Tiffany's post that caught my attention as it came with a lovely picture, and she reminded us that pretending to be Robin Hood is still a big deal with the under-10 crowd. Ben said, having now actually listened to the episode fully, I think David's case is decisive, not because it was some kind of super weapon, but because of how it was incorporated into English mythology. Andrew was firmly on Royfield's side, concluding his post with, Time has consigned the longbow to the past. Let it rest in peace. And on the other hand, Thomas said, Without the longbow, this podcast would be called Things That Made France Junior. <laughs> and Anthony, without the longbow, no Crecy or Agincourt, no Henry V's speech for Shakespeare, put it in the cabinet all day long, though I'm sure it was the Welsh who did all the fighting. I do like the cut of your jib, Anthony. There are 107 more comments on the longbow alone. And every single post is worth a gander, especially the ones complimentary either to the longbow or to the Welsh. Not that I'm biased or anything. I'd like to draw your attention to the file marked files on the left-hand side of the page, where under the heading file, David has posted a file which can be added to by you of all of the topics that have been suggested for the podcast, from Helen Mirren to the Prime Meridian and every hedgerow in between. It's a healthy list, but this is your page, oh listener, whose condition has been gentled. Feel free to make it overwhelming. Luke will be covering the Maggie Thatcher Roundup. I know that my esteemed colleague already has wonderful plans, but please do try and overwhelm him. In a fortnight, the topic will be Magna Carta. Till then, stay in sight, but stay out of target range. And I'll leave you with my take on what we should do with Maggie. Not ours! Thank you for that, Fiona. Uh, David, she's yes, in Royfield. the milk snatch. This one I forgot to say. I remember as a little kid, uh, when I started going to school in, what, 1974, that uh, up until about the age of seven, you had milk at school. Yes, and short, well, I had short trousers. That might be a... Um a local thing. Uh, that wasn't obligatory in Birmingham to have a short trouser, but to have milk absolutely yes, was. Yes, I remember milk, and we had straws in them. They were rather nice, nice little bottles. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, and blue straws, and I was a milk monitor. Were you? Do you know, yes, I never I had any monitor. responsibility at school. Did you not? Know? No. I was a milk monitor, and really? in my last year of senior school, I was a prefect as well. Were you really? So you're the... Yeah, you're the part, part of the establishment. So yeah, That is interesting, isn't it? So... Unlike our, you know, public personas now, you are a, you are an actual fact, the man. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I wasn't the man at school. I was very much a boy. You were a prefect. Yes, I was a prefect. Wait, I had the little prefect. badge and everything. Oh, yeah. God, you know, I'm appalled. I was a stooge of the establishment. Yes, you were the establishment. Ah, yeah. and that was I. But anyway, I wasn't a rebel. I just. 
didn't have any interest in anything other than football, basically. And of course, I, I mentioned Milk because, as I said at the very start of the show, um, before she became Prime Minister, she was known as Maggie Thatcher, the Milk Snatcher, because under ah, I had Ted Heath... forgotten that. Yeah, under Ted Heath, she was the Minister of Science and Education, and she stopped free milk going out right. to school kids mm-hmm. in the early 1970s. There you go. The wind. There you go. All right, so uh, enough about that, chat. Yeah, let's uh, let's say goodbye. In the next uh, episode, the next exciting episode of uh, the things that made England, David, what will we be discussing? I think we will be discussing Magna Carta. Oh Royfield. God! I know it. I was just I was oi. thinking actually. Oi, we're, oi. we're establishing a pattern here, aren't we? You do you know interesting modern cultural political modern things, and I do old farty stuff. Yeah. Quite apt. Old yeah. farty stuff. Yeah. I was born at the age of 45, obviously. <laughs> Hello, enough. We need to stop. And these are the things that made England. England. And St. George! These are the things that made England. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.